I heard, I heard David behind me say that he was good. How's everybody else? It, it started raining pretty hard out there, so you guys are stuck for a little while. You have to, have to stay and hear the whole sermon. Um, uh, does everybody have one of these cards? Uh, Kevin or Daniel or somebody, can we just make sure, if you don't have one of these cards, can you, can you raise your hand? Because we want to make sure that you get one uh, into your hands. Jordan needs one up front here. Anybody else just slip up your hand if you don't yet have one of these cards. We're going to use them as part of the sermon today. That's why everybody needs to have one. Anybody besides Jordan? Sean over here needs one. Amanda needs one. All right. So if you can just keep your hands up for a second and uh, Daniel will see you and get you that card. The reason uh, why is because on the back of the card, we have some very specific points of application that we want to encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit um, as he speaks to your heart through this message. And maybe he's going to challenge you about one of these two things, or maybe he's going to challenge you about something else altogether. But we want, to, we want to encourage you as you're listening to the sermon, listen with your Bible in your hand, and listen with your card in your hand, and be listening to the Spirit of God uh, so that you will know how he wants you to respond. And then at the end of the service, this is kind of your way of being accountable. We just ask you to drop this in the offering plate. And whichever missional family you're a part of, uh, we'll be able to encourage you and help you to grow as we all seek to become better disciples. So we're in the middle of a nine-week series. Uh, this is week number four. And our sermon series is called Chasing the Wind. Chasing the Wind. That's a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. That phrase, chasing the wind, was used several times by King Solomon throughout the book. Several times he kept referring to this, this way of doing life that he called chasing the wind. Now just a, a reminder about Ecclesiastes. Back three weeks ago when I, when I started us down this path, we talked about how Ecclesiastes was an, an ancient form of what's called pessimism literature. And back in the, in the cultures that surrounded Israel, way back in the day, back when Solomon lived, there, were these, there was this whole genre of writing called pessimism literature. And people would get really depressed, and they would write, and they would pontificate about things, and it was very mournful. It was very depressing. Uh, one of the most famous ones is this, is this Egyptian kind of poem called The Man Who Was Tired of Life. Um, and what Solomon does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is Solomon gives us the only biblical example of pessimism literature. And he writes in such a way that's refreshingly raw, honest, and it grapples with the tension of living life in a fallen world. Because if we're all honest, we have experienced days when we're not hitting those high notes, when we're not all triumphal, when everything is not going well. Instead, life is a downer this week. Or life has thrown us a curveball and it's challenged our faith in God. Or it's challenged our commitment to Christianity. Or perhaps it's challenged our trust in the scriptures. The great thing about the Bible is that the Bible never sugarcoats any of those struggles. The Bible doesn't sanitize it. It just puts the, the heroes of the faith on full display with all of their flaws. And Solomon comes under the inspiration of God with this, with this poem being breathed out by God. And he's, he's hitting some high notes and he's hitting some low notes. He's like, yeah, life is great. Enjoy the good life. And then he's like, oh, man, we're all going to die. Life stinks. And he, does, he bounces between those extremes, not just in the same book, but sometimes in the same chapter. Sometimes within the span of a couple of verses. 
So what we are learning together as we study this book, as we grapple with, with the, the difficulty of living life in a fallen world, we're learning like Solomon that living life is frequently like chasing the wind. Anybody here ever chase the wind? Now, I've seen um, storm chasers, right? Sometimes that people will try to fly uh, planes into the eye of a hurricane. The weather service always does that to try to test. Uh, to me, that seems like a really scary job. There are the, the tornado chasers. Um, they drive around, and I've, I've seen the TV shows where they do it. They're, they're chasing a form of the wind, but they're, they're really hoping that they don't catch it because it will be destructive upon them. But we all know instinctively that chasing the wind is a futile endeavor. When, when have you actually caught the wind? You can chase it all day long, but when have you caught it? When have you gotten it? And Solomon wants us to understand that life lived apart from God is simply chasing the wind. The title of today's sermon is Cash Rules. Cash Rules, because the second half of chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, Kevin preached last week, and he left off at verse 7 of chapter 5. Beginning at verse 8 and all the way through the end of chapter 6, the subject that, that Solomon decides to grapple with is this chasing of the wind when it comes to stuff, when it comes to money, when it comes to possessions. So we want to talk about some cash rules. Wouldn't you like to have some great cash rules, rules that just tell you how to deal with your cash. Would that not be awesome? Well, don't want to bait and switch you. The Bible doesn't actually give us any sort of cash rules like that. But what it does show us is that if we're not careful, cash will rule our hearts. And that's what Solomon gets at in this passage. Got a picture I want to show you. Uh, there's a 1997 song, Puff Daddy. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the acquisition of stuff. You get your money, you get your cars, you get your house, you get your bling, you get everything. You acquire your stuff because life is all about the Benjamins. Now, we would probably, most of us, if we're coming from a Christian frame of reference, we would recoil to that. We'd say, no, that's not the right way to live life. But let me show you another picture here. A lot of us, we will instantly react to the all about the Benjamins approach, but we will fall for the American dream hook, line, and sinker. Somebody yell out, what is, what is the American dream? What's the American dream? Uh, there's no right answer. There's more than one right answer. What, what, somebody in the back said something. Buy me a house, okay? Home ownership is a big deal in America. People want to be able to own their own home. What? A good job. A good job, okay? What else? Call yourself up, get bootstrapped, work hard, make money. Yeah, okay. Okay, kids, a dog. Good job, the white picket fence, right? That's the classic image of the American dream. Okay, so. HBO. All right, so there's a lot that comes with the American dream. Okay, now here's the deal. Those of us who are Christian will be able to spot the flaws in Puff Daddy's song, It's All About the Benjamins, because that's just crass materialism. That is idolatry centered around money and around stuff. But if we're not careful, 
This will get us every time. Because it's more insidious. It sneaks up on us, and we don't even know it. Now, I realize here, not everybody's American. But everybody here uh, has either grown up with this, or you've been exposed to it since you moved here. From, from pop culture, from songs, TV, just the dog-eat-dog world that we live in. The American dream of pursuing stuff. And in America, we have... We we are a very wealthy nation by global standards. We are a wealthy nation, and we have gloried in our wealth. And we have told people that this is the good life. Having stuff, having that 401k, having that IRA, having that unlimited metro card, having, having a brownstone, or being able to afford a, a car... So you don't have to use the subway. That is the good life. Solomon says, I've been down that road. Like I was the wealthiest dude in Israel. And I found that it disappointed. Because life is not really all about the Benjamins. I want you to imagine with me a colorblind colony. Now, I want to say right from the, from the get-go, if you're colorblind... I hope you don't take offense at this at this illustration. I'm not making fun of any colorblind people, okay? All right. But I want you to imagine with me an entire city full of people who are colorblind. They have never known reds and yellows. They've never known purples and blues. Everything that they have seen is shades of gray. But then the people in that city, they're minding their own lives raising their kids, and they see this wandering, mysterious gentleman who walks into the, the town square, and he's got a backpack, and he starts passing out glasses. And as he begins to pass out glasses, people put them on, because that's what you do with glasses. And all of a sudden, you can hear the gasp as it takes their breath away. One man, he steps back, because he's seen the sunrise as if if it were the first time. He's seen the sun come up a million times before, but this time it's different because now he sees it in color. There's a young mom with tears in her eyes with this new pair of glasses on. She's looking down at her child and she can see its eye color. She can see its hair color as she holds that baby and it's like she's holding her baby for the first time. That would spark a revolution. That would change a way of life in that colorblind colony as people see reality as it truly is. What Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6 does is Solomon breaks into the colorblind colony when it comes to finances. And he says, guys, I've got a pair of glasses for you. I want you to put on this pair of glasses and you are going to see reality as you've never seen it before. Because you are thinking it's all about the Benjamins. You are thinking it's about the American dream. You are thinking it's about the pursuit of stuff and that this is how you orient your life. But I am going to show you the world that you have never seen. All you have to do is put on God's pair of glasses. So without further ado, let's do that. Let's dive into Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 8. And we're going to notice several things about money. And then we're going to wrap up with two points of application at the end. First off, money can be linked to oppression. Money can be linked to oppression. Look at verse, verse number 8 and 9. It should be on the screen, but I encourage you to be following along. 
if you've got a Bible in front of you as well. Solomon said, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Solomon looked around Israel, and he saw oppression. The oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. And he's telling people, don't be amazed at this. When you see that corrupt official who's lording it over, over the farmers, who's taxing them when, when, when you know, he's skimming some off the top and he's pocketing the extra taxes, don't be surprised. Don't be amazed at that, for that high official is being watched over by another corrupt official who's, who's skimming stuff off of him. And so there's this, there's this pyramid scheme, basically, and one official is, is pressing down upon the other official who's pressing down upon the other official, and you've got this, this system in Israel that is crushing the poor. So he said, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed at the matter because there is always someone looking over the shoulder of that other God. He recognizes, he doesn't really elaborate upon this point. He just puts it out there, says this is the way it is. That money can be linked to oppression. He says there are poor, there are people whose justice and righteousness is being violated. Frequently, we know how that could happen in those kinds of eras, in those kinds of times, then, as sometimes as is now, if you get into legal trouble, you can get off if you can afford a really good lawyer, right? So back then, if you could bribe the judge, you could get off. That was the way it was. Problem was the poor guy, right? The, uh, the, the, they didn't have mayors, but just the, the guy over the village, he's got his, his boot on the neck of the farmers, right? And so he can't afford the good lawyer. He can't afford to go see the elders and to have his, have his case appealed in the, in the sanctuary cities. So they're struggling. Money is being used for power. In a world in which we almost worship money, it's important to remember from the outset that money can be used in some awful ways. And money can be, and in the Bible, in these two verses, it is linked to oppression. The second thing I want us to observe from this passage is that money can't satisfy. Money can't satisfy. Look at verse 10. Solomon said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Solomon said, you know, I've loved money. I've spent a lot of my reign as the king of Israel acquiring that which I love. And I had an unlimited, you know, bank budget. Uh, so I can get whatever I want. I've spent my career as king doing stuff like this. But I've never been satisfied with money. I've never been satisfied with stuff. He who loves wealth will never be happy with his income. Now, I want you to think about your income right now. Whatever it is you make. I don't want you to raise your hand and, and tell us, but what are you making today? And then think, what would it take, what would you have to make for you to be happy with your income? I want you to try to come up with a dollar figure. Again, I don't want to know. That doesn't really matter. That's not the point. 
But what would happen, what Solomon is telling us, is that if you've got that higher number and you're living that life, after a month or two, you'd be like, this is not enough. Because there's this other thing that I want to buy and I just, you know, my friends, this is how they're rolling. They're pursuing the good life, but, but even though I have that higher salary now, even though I got that greater income, I'm still not, not making bank like I think I ought to. Solomon said it's, it's almost hardwired into man that we struggle with discontentment. That we churn out idols. There's this guy who said our hearts are our idol factories. And money is a huge one of those idols that we pursue. He said, Solomon said, you will never be satisfied with your income, no matter how much you make. I know that there are really rich people who forget how many homes they own and all that kind of stuff, but those guys are happy. And they're always wanting more. Solomon said, if you love money, you won't be satisfied with money. Interestingly, he doesn't say money is wrong. In fact, as we get farther on into the passage, he says it's a good thing. In and of itself, it's a good thing. The problem is not money. The problem is loving money. The problem is loving stuff. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. You might remember that when we started Ecclesiastes, we said that, that probably the best translation of that word vanity is temporary. Every time the word vanity is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the best way to understand it is that Solomon is saying this is temporary. She's saying, don't love your stuff because it's temporary. That bigger paycheck that you were so stoked about that you thought was going to revolutionize your life, that's temporary. That's not going to last. You may lose your job or they may cut your salary or at the very least you're going to die and you're not going to take that paycheck with you. Your 401k is not going to roll over into heaven. He's like, it doesn't last. So what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He's like, yeah, I've got all this stuff. And then poof, it's gone. Or poof, and he's gone. Either way, money doesn't satisfy because money doesn't last. That's the third thing that Solomon drives home. Look at verse number 12. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, someone who works hard, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his father's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? There's that idea, that phrase, chasing the wind. What gain is there to him who chases the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Solomon said, money doesn't last. And he talks about two, two workers, the laborer, the guy who's, you know, he's working a construction job. He's not making very much money. Uh, maybe he's got minimum wage. His life is not great if the standard is the American dream. But Solomon said whether he eats a little or, or eats much, whether he has money to, to, to only go to the bodega or whether he can go to the organic grocery store over on Franklin, whether he's got a little or whether he's got a lot, 
He sleeps. But the full stomach of the rich man, the guy who dines on steak and shrimp every night, the guy who has the fanciest imported cheeses from all over the world and pops the, the, the cork off the, the nicest bottle of wine, he's like, that guy can't sleep at night. He's got everything. He's living the good life. He's found and he's caught the American dream. But he's found that it didn't satisfy. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. That phrase under the sun is a way of talking about life apart from God. There's this problem I've seen, Solomon said, under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. Solomon said, I've seen these guys. He was probably one of them. I've seen these guys who invested their money in some kind of project, some real estate venture or or some uh, technology stocks that went bust, or whatever, and it didn't last. He said, he's the father of a son. He's got a son to take care of, but he has nothing in his hands. This is a great evil. He said he, he came from his mother's womb with nothing, with absolutely nothing. And when he dies, he's going to go with absolutely nothing. Now, uh, Xavier was born just about nine months ago. And uh, I was there in the, in the delivery room as he was born. And I can tell you, he did not hand me a stack of Benjamins as he waltzed into this world. He wasn't wearing some diamond-studded rings. He didn't have any swag. He had nothing. That's what Solomon understood. He's like, this is how we come in. This is how we go out. Like Randy Alcorn says, you have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Now, the Egyptians tried it, right? It was one of the reasons for the pyramids and the pharaohs would die. And then they would have all their favorite, they would leave behind orders to have their favorite servants and their favorite wives killed. And then loaded, their bodies loaded in to the pyramid with them, along with enough food and stuff and luxurious items to last for a long time. Because they thought they could take the U-Haul with them to the next life. But that's not actually how it works. Naked we come in, naked we go out. Solomon said we don't get to take anything with us. He says this is a grievous evil. So all of our days we just eat in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. This is where Solomon really starts to sound gloomy and, and pessimistic and like, ah, oh, this is awful. This is what life is like under the sun, Solomon says. Now, if we stopped right there, that would probably, we'd all be like, okay, I love to go to church to get depressed, right? Um, but then Solomon turns the page. Because remember I said in this, in this ancient genre of pessimism literature, Solomon could balance between the highs and the lows all in one chapter. And that's what, he, that's what he does right here. Because next, he says money can be enjoyed. Money can be enjoyed. Now, you wouldn't necessarily think that after everything I've said. We've just been hammering the American dream, right? And, and you're not supposed to live your life for money. And then Solomon says money can be enjoyed. Verse 18, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life. 
that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So it's like Solomon pumps the brakes. He's like, guys, hold on. You actually can enjoy life. You actually can enjoy stuff, the stuff that God has given us. He says, I've seen it to be good and fitting to, to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil and all the work with which we have toiled under the sun. God has given us this, he says, for this is our lot. You see, one of the reasons why Solomon says that we can rejoice and we can enjoy money and enjoy material possessions, enjoy that which we have, is because he recognizes that even though he's the king over Israel, there's a king greater than him. A king who is sovereign. A king who has dispensed all wealth to every single person. Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, you have that much because that's what God's given you. Solomon said, this is our lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his work, this is the gift of God. So Solomon says, look, we're living in a broken world. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that a lot of times doesn't make sense. He says, sometimes it seems like the best thing that we can do is to just hold on and enjoy life. And yes, Solomon says, you should eat. You should drink. You should go to that basketball game. You should go with your wife to that Broadway show. You should do this or you should do that because this is the things that God has given us. Now, if we just took these verses in isolation, we could build this massive uh, doctrine that says that we should be wealthy and that we should be happy and that God should just give us everything and we should just go crazy. That's not what these verses are saying. But you see, what, a, what happens a lot of times is that Christians get into trouble when they just take a couple of verses over here and they ignore a couple of verses over here, right? We have to take this whole chapter together. And part of the chapter says, money doesn't last. You can't live for money. If you live for money, your life stinks. And then there's other parts that say, we should enjoy that which God has given us. We should really, really enjoy that which God has given us. So there were these guys that lived about 100 years after the time of the Apostle Paul. They were called Gnostics. They taught that the soul, the spirit, the invisible us is the good part of us and the body is bad. So they taught uh, you don't don't have sex. You try not to eat more than is absolutely necessary. Uh, You don't ever have any nice clothes. Anything having to do with the body is bad. The spirit is good. The body is bad. But the Bible soundly refutes that entire idea because we are made beautiful by God, body and soul. And in this passage, Solomon says, enjoy what God's given you. I think this is kind of the the redone version of what Pastor Woodley was talking about a couple of weeks ago when when he talked about pasta, right? Enjoy your pasta. Enjoy your jerk chicken. Enjoy what God has given you because it is good. It is good. Now, here's the last thing that Solomon says. 
And it's really just a repeat of what he said before. Money doesn't last. This is just the remix version of it, though. All of chapter 6, he's going at it and saying that money doesn't last, and he's saying it in a different way. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Think temporary. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. When I first read verse three, I was kind of jarred by this idea of a father having a hundred children. I was like, that's like, that's pretty bizarre. Um, but then I was like, you know what? We know from the Bible that Solomon, not defending it, the Bible never defends it, but Solomon had about a thousand women in his harem. If there was anybody capable of literally having a hundred kids, literally fathering a hundred kids, it was Solomon. Solomon's like, everything that you could, you could say as part of the good life, I've been there, done that, and I've come up empty. I've had the hundred kids, but you know, when you do that, when you have a hundred kids and you live many years and the days of your years are many, but your soul is not satisfied with good things. It's like it's all temporary. It's all wasted. And he talks about this guy that, that dies and has no burial. That was one of the, the greatest shames you could have in ancient Israelite culture is to die and, and not have a place to be buried. He says, this is what life is like. And he says, I think that a stillborn child a stillborn child is better off than this man who's fathered a hundred kids and lived his life and pursued this stuff, but he's come up empty. He says, at least the stillborn child just came in darkness and then went in darkness. He didn't have these struggles of a full life. They might say, that sounds pretty dark. And it does. And God, of course, is not telling us that the value of a stillborn child is meaningless or worthless. That's not what these verses are saying at all. But what Solomon is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's giving us this raw portrait of his soul. And this is how Solomon feels. He's like, I wish, I wish I had died in the delivery room. That's essentially what he's saying. I wish I had died in the delivery room because I have lived my life for the good stuff. I have pursued that good life because I thought it was all about the Benjamins. And I've wasted my life. Verse 5, he says, Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. He kind of continues the discussion about that stillborn child and this man who has fathered a hundred kids. He said, they both die. They both go into the afterlife. They both turn into dust. He said, so what difference does it really make? Verse 7, he says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes 
than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind, a chasing after the wind. Solomon said, you know, you've seen the guys, maybe you've been one of them, where your eyes just see everything that you want. You're going through the buffet, and you're like, oh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And that's the, that's the image that he conjures up here, this wandering appetite. Or maybe you're going through Best Buy and you're like, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. Or maybe you're just riding the subway and you're looking around at your neighbor's stuff. You're like, I got those new Beats headphones. Why can't I afford them? Or, man, look at those sneakers. I wish I had shoes like that. And the idols of our heart are exposed in that moment. Because of this wandering appetite, he says, this also is vanity. This is chasing the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And then he wraps up the chapter with verse 12 saying, For who knows what is good for man while he lives, the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Just imagine Solomon. He's worked hard to build this kingdom. He's like, I wonder what's going to happen when I'm, when I'm gone. Because who can tell a man what will happen after him in this life under the sun? Someone's like, what is, what is the next king going to do? Is he going to split this kingdom? Of course, we know from history that's absolutely what happened. Solomon's sons split the kingdom. Squandering everything that David and Solomon had built. And Solomon, it was almost like he had a premonition and he's like, this is... I have a bad feeling about this. Because he's like, I'm living this good life. I've got these few days of this, this vein, this temporary life. It's like a shadow. It's just it's there, but then it's not. But who knows what's going to happen next? Who knows what's going to happen after me under the sun? Now, where do we bottom line this? I want to leave us with one simple big idea for today's sermon. Living your life for money is like chasing the wind. Living your life for money is like chasing the wind. Now, I think that New York City, in particular, is built to chase the wind. Since the Dutch founded New York City, since they bought it from the Native Americans in the 1640s, New York City has always been about the acquisition of wealth and stuff. Maybe that's why some of you came here. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But maybe some of you came here to America to have a better opportunity. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Please don't hear me knocking that. But what's wrong, the struggle, is when here in New York we get caught up in this rat race and it becomes all about the Benjamins. Look at this quote from Paul Tripp. He's one of my favorite authors. He says, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling. 
A desire for a good thing, in this case money, becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. You see, there are no rules for how you handle cash. But the, but the danger to be avoided is when cash rules are hard. Paul Tripp would say, along with Solomon, there's nothing wrong with money. Enjoy it when God has given it to you. But don't let it rule your heart because then the desire for that good thing has become a bad thing because it's become a ruling thing. Because it dominates your heart. It invades your thoughts. It robs you of your joy when you don't have what you think you should have. So, I've listed two cash rules. I know the Bible doesn't, doesn't really give us rules for how to handle our money per se, but it gives us some principles. Here's two basic principles that I think are found in this passage. These are, these are reflected in your card here. So if you've not been looking at your card, now's a good time to pick it back up and to take a look at it as we wrap up this sermon. First off, God calls us to enjoy what he's given us. To enjoy what he's given us. Now, that part of this passage was sandwiched in the middle of all the other stuff where Solomon was railing against money and, and how it's all a waste and all of this stuff. And sometimes it can be easy to gloss over that good part. But it's here. And it's biblical. In fact, there are eight different times in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says something like this, where it holds up this very positive vision and it's like, enjoy the good life. Because God has given it to you. Enjoy it. Savor the moment. Because it's temporary. It's all vanity. It's all temporary. You don't know when this moment will end. So enjoy what God has given to you. And I think that for Christians, that has to start with giving thanks. You know, we've developed a tradition. Most of us probably pray before we sit down and eat a meal. Right? At least when we're hanging out together with other Christians, we're like, I know, they're going to expect me to do this, so I'm going to do this. And so we pray over the meal. What are we doing when we, when we do that? What, are, what do we say? Is that when we, we pray for the president and we pray for our Aunt Susie? I mean, maybe some of you do that. But like, what do we normally do when we sit down over dinner and pray? What do we do? We give thanks. Now, if you're like me, you might just rush right through that. And just mouth some meaningless words. But how about the next time you actually sit down? Because Solomon said, actually, in this passage, we can eat. We can drink. We can enjoy the good life. We can enjoy that which God has given us. How about next time you sit down? You really and truly give God thanks. You know, I think our kids maybe get this right better than we do. Malia's, you know, been at that stage recently. Hasn't done it so much lately, but she did it for a while. Hi, Malia. She's waiting at me because she heard me talking about her. Where you give thanks for every single item on the table, right? God, I thank you for the grapes. I thank you for the bread. I thank you for the glass of water. I thank you for the macaroni and cheese. I thank you for daddy's hot sauce that I don't like, right? That's what our kids do. I kind of feel like that's the spirit and the attitude that God expects of all his children. And we're like, you know, we don't rush over. Man, look at this meal that God has given me. Look at this long metro pass that God has given me. Look at this winter jacket that I'm getting to trot out this time of year. Not today, but this time of year. 
because it's getting cold. God has given me a coat. Let me stop and celebrate and give thanks. Because gratitude is the beginning point of enjoyment. Of enjoying this good life. God has called us to enjoy what he has given us. And to enjoy it to the fullest. Of course that has to be tempered with the very next point. Which is that God calls us to invest in eternity. So yeah, we're called to enjoy. We're called to celebrate what he's given. But we're not called to live in that moment. We're called to live and to invest in the light of eternity. So that second box on, on the card there is to ask God to show me how to invest in eternity. You know, Solomon didn't really go deeply into this, but Jesus did in Matthew chapter 6. When he talked about, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is exactly what Solomon was doing. Jesus said, if you do that, moth and rust will corrupt. Thieves will break in and steal, which is exactly what Solomon said. He's like, it doesn't last. I acquire all this stuff and people take it or I die and I leave it behind in my kids. You squander it. So what's the point? Jesus said, don't be like Solomon. Don't acquire stuff just for yourself because it doesn't last. It's not all about the Benjamins, guys. There is a better and a higher world to live for. So Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth because they will be temporary. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven because those are not temporary. Those are eternal. Those last forever. They are worth living for. So we live now with our temporary stuff that God has given us. We live now and we invest it in eternity. See, Randy Alcorn, who I quoted earlier about the, the hearse pulling the U-Haul, he said, we can't take it with us. But he said, we can send it on ahead which is what it means to invest in eternity. This is why we give to the church, to fund God's mission around the world. This is why we give to charity. This is why we choose to bless people with God's money. It's his money, not ours, right? We choose to invest in eternity. We choose to advance God's mission around the world through how we spend our money. So what are the cash rules? What do we do to keep cash from ruling our heart? Like it ruled Solomon's heart. First off, we enjoy what God has given us. We take legitimate delight in the good life. As defined by God. We give him thanks. And we relish those moments knowing full well that they are temporary and may not last. So we make the most of it. But then we simultaneously live for another world. A world that we were truly made for. Remember I started by talking about a, an imaginary colorblind colony? There was this writer named C.S. Lewis who liked to describe this world as the Shadowlands. A place of, of just gray, gray ugliness. It's a good world, but there's no, no color, no excitement, not a whole lot of beauty. But he's like, when we get to heaven, it's going to be like seeing... Uh, a sunrise in, in vivid HD color for the first time. He's like, right now, we live here in the Shadowlands. But we were made for so much more than this. We were made for a world that we haven't seen yet. We were made for a place that we haven't been to yet. Because we are citizens of that coming kingdom. And that's where we're going. So we live now in the, in the midst of this broken 
messed up world. We embrace this tension. We celebrate what is good. We enjoy what God has given us. And we live for that. We live for that. We invest in eternity. I want us to pray.